From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Jim Parsons. He plays closeted talent agent Henry Wilson on the Netflix drama Hollywood. Jim talks to me about what drew him to the role of Henry after wrapping up work on The Big Bang Theory. He also looks back at his own coming out experience. I didn't want to be gay when I was realizing I was gay. I I, I had a, a picture of Claudia Schiffer in my bedroom, and not just because I thought she was pretty and probably secretly wanted to be her, but was because I was hoping that if I worshipped at that type of altar, it would change me in some way, and just by visual osmosis. I don't even know. Plus... Jim fills us in on the TV shows he's watching in quarantine right now and what he learned from the sitcoms he watched growing up in Houston. Let's get to it. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell us where you are doing this interview from. I am in a town just outside of the city of New York where I have been quarantining for April, May, so three months now, a little over three so crazy. I mean, how do you even look at this experience like three months in? Is it just like, okay, I think I have the hang of this now somewhat. It's not as... No, no. I mean, I've, I'm ebbing and flowing the way I have the whole time, but but even the ebbing and flowing seems to be changing. And part of that is due to events. I mean, what's kind of crazy is that when when did Hollywood launch on Netflix? I guess that was like May 1st. So... I kind of always knew that was coming once I was in quarantine. And that was kind of, um, I felt very fortunate to have some sort of pillar to look forward to. Like, I wasn't going to be able to actually work like as an actor, but I could at least feel like I was doing something and helping to promote something and whatever. But what was crazy was that when we first started the interviews and press for it, you felt this weird kind of thing of like, oh gosh, is it okay to be it's stupid that we're talking about this. I mean, it's not, but I, you know, it's weird. And then a few weeks went by and I realized that my interviews were no longer starting the same way with everyone going, yeah, I'm okay. How are you? They were starting to be like, I'm good. How are you doing? And I was like, oh, I guess we've, we've adjusted. And now, now we're in the, the aftermath of this George Floyd video and it's not at all the same thing, but suddenly it's been yanked back again to like, this seems really insipid to be talking about a television show. And I know it's not. I know that the world is multifaceted and, and that you can do several things at once and they can all actually tie together in the end, if, if, if God willing. But I guess the similarity for me is that now everything where before, early in this, everything was through the lens of COVID. Now everything is through the lens of this. Everything relates in some way, or you force it to relate in some way to what's currently going on with, with the protests. And I, to a degree, I guess some of this just has to happen. But in my most, huh, I guess I'll just shut up for a minute way, I, I go back to the touchstone for me in this particular, which was that video that came out. And as many as we've seen, there was something about it for me and apparently for a lot of others that you didn't even have to think about. It, it was a feeling of, uh-uh, enough. I, I can't watch this anymore. And it sounds, I, I hope it doesn't sound, I should say, disrespectful to say that in, in reference to any of the previous videos, which obviously were horrific, but this was different. I, I, there's just no denying it. Um, 
the tipping point, I guess Malcolm Gladwell would call it. Well, I mean, a lot of people have talked about, like, I mean, at least I see on Twitter of people taking the breaks when they need them, um, turning to other things, like turning off Twitter. And a lot of times TV is that source of escape for how, however long it is. And, you know, we talked about the pandemic and now this. What TV have you been watching when you need sort of that, that break? The first thing we watched when we got here to take our break was um, the Great British Baking Show. I always feel like I get the title wrong. Did it change at some point? Something's confusing me about it. Okay, thank you. Oh my God, I really (laughs) felt crazy about that. Anyway, well, whatever it is, that British Baking Show, we love it. We love it, and we ran through that. And then when that was over, we made... I don't know if it was a 180-degree turn, but we went to Succession on HBO, which we hadn't seen, and was certainly darker than the Great British Baking Show, but my God, is it good. The actors were just incredible, you know, every single one of them. And as was the writing, and as is the whole show, the concept, but I guess partly as an actor, I was just so blown away by the acting. Every single part. And the theme song. The theme song gets me. (laughs) Really? I just, I love that theme song. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. We don't have enough theme songs anymore, in my opinion. We've taken that away to save room for for other parts of the material, I guess. One of my favorites was always Cagney and Lacey, um, (laughs) which I can't even remember my head right now. But as soon as you said it was the first one I thought of and like... Oh, it just set the mood. I was going to watch those two cops and I just couldn't wait. God, I loved them. Oh my God, that's funny. I want to talk about Hollywood, the Netflix drama from Ryan Murphy, Ian Brennan, and Janet Mock. But before we get into the character you play, I wanted to get a sense of what drew you to it. Because, I mean, you were coming off a long-running, successful sitcom, Big Bang Theory, And you sort of had the luxury of being selective with your time and your next project. So why did you decide on Hollywood? We were in the middle of shooting the movie version of Boys in the Band. And I had known that was coming the entire last season of Big Bang because they were setting it up towards the end of the summer. So I knew that my next summer, whatever happened with with the TV show, I was going to be shooting that. At some point during the shooting, Ryan came to my trailer and was just like, wanted to talk to me about this project. And the reason I said yes more than anything was really Ryan and and the timing, actually, because I, I agree. Well, obviously, I agree with you, but I was kind of thinking, and not in a bad way, I was like, well, this is going to be really interesting this time in my life when I don't know what's next and... And I don't know what's out there, and I don't know how long I'll go before I do something else again. And I was intrigued by how am I going to respond to that, and what is that going to do to me, and change my outlook, and maybe reveal some more specific desires of what whatever. And then Ryan came and knocked, and I kind of, I mean, honestly, my first reaction was like, oh my God, really? I really thought I was going to go through that weird desert of an experience, which honestly, looking back now, I'm like, no actor really wants that. But, you know, I was, maybe I was just making the best of it in my head. Anyway, but so the biggest reason I said yes was that because it was Ryan and my relationship with him and my admiration for what he does and who he does these projects with, he just, the people he surrounds himself with are incredible. Um, 
I kind of knew I was going to say yes immediately. I, I, I've said this in other interviews, so pardon me if you've heard it before, but like, but it's true. It felt like the universe was throwing a hand down and saying, here, here you go, come here next. And I love that. I think that's one of, I think in some ways that's one of my favorite things about this whole career, starting from the days when I was in college in Houston and everything, just the way if you just kind of keep plugging away at it, the way the universe, the way the world, the way other people uh, just come into your life and you just kind of, you just feel when it's right to take the next step, even if you don't know what that's going to lead to. And in this case, it turned into one of the most enjoyable experiences I had had in a long time. Well, I just want to set it up for our listeners. If they haven't watched Hollywood, it sort of offers this revisionist history and sort of course corrects the treatment of marginalized groups in the film industry. And you portray a real person, Henry Wilson, a closeted agent who was famous in the 40s for launching the careers of people like Rock Hudson. Um, And he was sort of, I guess, known for taking advantage of his male clients. And so I think it goes without saying that Henry is unlike the character most people know you as, which is Sheldon Cooper. So did that make it more fun? And did it add to the pressure to make it believable? And at what point were you like, okay, this is fully out of my comfort zone? Oh, well, let's see. I'll back up in these questions. I, I, I never felt fully out of my comfort zone. The only two things that came down in the script that I went, oof, huh, were the dance I did as Salome and then, and I don't mean to spoil it for anybody, but I think it's okay. And then in the um, apology scene I had with Rock, and very different reasons. The, the Salome scene, because, and this is honestly the truth, it said he, it's Henry down to his last two veils. I was like, oh shit, how much skin am I about to show? He promised me that it was only going to be people under the age of 30 that had to show their you know, asses, what have you. And then the apology scene, which, if you haven't seen it, is part of, a major part of the revisionist history, The what I would even call kind of a fantasy sequence. It was such a, a big turn that it, uh, it just kind of scared me. I was like, oh, how do I ground this? And partly because I, I always want to give credit to, there's this marvelous book, uh, The Man Who Invented Rock Hudson by Robert Hoffler. It was my Bible through the whole thing. And uh, not that we stuck to it by any stretch of the imagination. There were plenty of times that it veered course. But it gave me so much raw context to subconsciously even base things in. Anyway, so a lot of the more vicious scenes where it would have seemed like you logically would have been uncomfortable, they weren't so hard. I knew that it was based in a reality and I knew that, and I enjoyed my job of puzzling out, I don't want to say justifications for it, but like where in him this came from and why was he, whatever. But then the apology scene, I didn't have any real life thing to go on. And it was only once I started working on it and saying those words out loud to learn them and just to get the feel of them, that it really started land in me and I really began to appreciate what the writers were doing as far as this 
kind of what-if version. Partly, I also really began to fall in love with the idea that of all the characters in our in our show, in some ways, Henry, the one that I play, is the only one who you get to see so directly changed by the event that's t- the revisionist event, the major event that's taken place in the show. Everything else is kind of left, and as it should be, I think, launched into if this had happened, what would it look like in our world, in our industry, whatever. Henry is the only one who, you know, Cryon comes on the screen three years later or whatever. And he's a changed man. That pushed dominoes for him that offered him an opportunity to look at who he was. And obviously a, a fantastical, somewhat idealized sequence, but why the hell not? If we're gonna show <laughs> if we're gonna show a change, then let's see what what a good possibility there. This episode is brought to you by Big Little Lies on HBO. Based on Leanne Moriarty's best-selling book, this darkly comedic series tells the tale of five mothers whose seemingly perfect lives unravel to the point of murder. In the second season of Big Little Lies, trouble returns to Monterey, California, as relationships unravel, loyalties erode, and the potential for emotional and bodily injury still looms large. Critics claim the second season is as good as TV gets, and The Hollywood Reporter hails the cast as TV's best ensemble. Big Little Lies is Emmy-eligible for Outstanding Drama Series and all other categories. You know, where Sheldon was somebody that, like, had his routines and was very, like, you know, not in a box, but, like, you knew what to expect. Like, Henry is very loose, and we obviously see that, too, a lot with the lines that Ryan has, you say. Um, He has very colorful language. Uh, Is there a line that has stayed with you since production? (sighs) Of all of them, it was to a character of Guy Madison, I think it's episode five, a scene that I relished only because as ugly as it was, it was such a lovely role reversal of a man criticizing another man for his lack of upkeep of his body in Hollywood. And in it, the woman who plays my secretary is measuring his bicep and measuring his waist and the waist has gone up, the bicep's gone down. And at some point, I had to get out of the chair and say, fuck me in the ass. You've got to be kidding. I I could have said that all day, every day. It was filthy. It said so much and not nearly enough. And it's just, it was vile, you know. But what, what fun. <laughs> I meant to, like, once the show came out, I meant to, like, scroll through, like, Google images just to see how many gifts have been made of your character. And I still haven't done it, but I need to do it because he has so many interesting lines that I'm like, these are just perfect for gifts. I only had the ones that uh, Netflix had sent to me. I have luckily not been so um, self-absorbed as to Google my own gifts. But, um, but yeah, they had one of me dancing that I really liked. And they had 
what was the other one? Oh, it was the one that was in the trailer where I yell at Rock Hudson because he doesn't realize that Vivian Lee was Scarlett O'Hara. Too good. What's also interesting about this character is he's part of a marginalized community, but he's also someone contributing to the oppression. So talk about getting into that mindset, like tapping into his own internal shame. Yeah. um, Gosh, where to begin with it? You know, they really spelled it out well, for me at least. I think it's episode three where I'm really angry and I'm talking to Rock and I'm like, screw these heads of the studios. If I weren't gay, I know more than any of them. And if I weren't gay, now I don't know that that's completely true. I think Henry was also very enjoyed being the diva and full of himself one way or the other. But either way, he very much felt aware of his sexuality keeping him from reaching the heights that he felt he could have without that. And, you know, Robert Hoffler in his book actually makes a note that as vile as Henry is in many of his ways, it should be noted and is noted by many, Robert says, that a lot of male behavior towards females that was similar to Henry's behavior towards his male clients was just taken hand in hand with their power. It was considered part of that as opposed to sick, you know, where Henry's activities were were morally decrepit. Um, and luckily, I think that's sort of changing. But I do still think that it rings to Henry's behavior, no matter, even if it was apples to apples sexually and abuse of power with the straight males had an extra sheen of, of a lack of morality simply because it was gay. Anyway, I don't know what the real Henry Wilson thought and felt, obviously, but for me, it was really easy to go on that journey of exploring how much of these horrible things he did and this need to exercise his power to the nth degree, he was doing to both compensate for where he felt he was lacking, partly because of the way leading a secretive life eats at someone and causes that level of self-hatred. I was doing Boys in the Band, like I said, right as this came into my life, and they're very different characters, but they're both gay at a time when that was very socially unacceptable, and both of these characters carried with them, I think, a great amount of... um, of self-loathing because of it. Could you relate to that on any level? Yeah, I'm sure I can. I mean, obviously my life's been in no way, partly because the way the time I was born in, maybe entirely because of the time I was born in. Because one of the things I bring up all the time, I was thinking about, I had good parents and they loved me. But Henry actually, unless Robert Hoffler got this wrong, and I don't think he did, Henry came from a pretty good family too. So like, I, I kept looking to that. I was like... Henry's got a lot of issues, and one of them is he's just broken. He's he's got something's a little wrong beyond the obvious. But anyway, but yeah, I could relate to it, and I, and it may be a, um, a journey worth taking as a person to willfully decide you don't feel that way, and I don't even want to hear about it. And maybe that's healthier for you. I don't think it is for me when I look at... I know it's not because I enjoy playing them. It's not healthier for me to look at characters and have that feeling of, well, thank God I'm not anything like that. I thank God that I am a human just like these characters were a human and that 
both circumstances and the people I've met have allowed my life to not be as difficult in that way and have allowed me not to dislike myself in the same way, you know. But I'm old enough that I did, I, or maybe I shouldn't even blame it on age. Maybe it's just me. I'll take responsibility. There you go. I didn't want to be gay when I was realizing I was gay. I, I, I had a, a picture of Claudia Schiffer in my bedroom and not just because I thought she was pretty and probably secretly wanted to be her, but was because I was hoping that if I worshipped at that type of altar, it would change me in some way, just by visual osmosis. I don't even know. And I don't, you know, again, I, I feel like I'm in, I'm in a, uh, I'm fortunate enough in the world that I'm living in for, for gay men now. And I've been treated so well by the industry that I'm in and things like that, that I'm able to look back at it. That is kind of almost entirely amusing, but just putting those facts out there, it's, um, I don't know. You know, that's sad for anybody to, to go, I accept myself for who I am, but life would sure be easier if I wasn't. And that was kind of the line for a long time. I haven't heard that in several years now that I say that out loud, but it was like one of the things when people were like, it's a choice to be gay was always, again, I don't hear this as much anymore, but I remember when I was younger and coming out, it was like, do you think if I had a choice, I would choose this extra hurdle in a road of life that's just going to have hurdles anyway? I don't know. I'm kind of glad we don't say that as much anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the series, it plays with the idea of how entertainment can damage, but also how it can bring about change. And that's obviously been a topic of discussion in recent weeks, whether it's the portrayals of cops on TV or diversity in front of and behind the camera to bring more nuanced narratives. And you've talked before uh, about how pivotal Ellen DeGeneres' coming out episode was for you. So, I mean, what's your take on Hollywood's culpability in shaping culture? It is a complicated topic. And I think the fun thing about thinking about it and talking about it, and I don't expect any answers to come out of our conversation today, however, it is reminiscent of how I'm feeling about everything going on right now, which is that beyond the sadness and the anger, if that helps motivate into thinking about things in such a way that is new to you. You know, I posted about the book, um, white fragility. And I specifically had been brought into it because of the interview, either the whole interview or a segment of it I saw. I don't, it was like nine minutes long with the author. She says, when we're talking about race, we're talking about your race because I'm white. She goes, there is no, there's nothing I haven't seen myself represented in. I have seen someone like me, or basically represented in every form, the heroine, the he, the whatever. And so the whole world is possible for me. And that alone, I've, it's a concept I've certainly, I'm not ignorant to, but there's something that was more illuminating about the way she said it. And of course, I thought about the rewrite sequence in our own show about giving the young black girl the lead role in a 1940s movie and, and, and the implications of that. But more to your point, and this, again, is an exciting topic. It's a balancing act. You're not going to change <laughs> many hearts and minds. And beyond that, you're not even going to effectively show somebody a representation of themselves if the story you're telling isn't also uh, not just entertaining, but inspired and something that you want to tell. 
And I think that the impulse to want to tell a story that, that represents certain people is a strong impulse, but isn't always the same impulse is just there's a story I want to tell. And I think that, that that's the balancing act that needs to go on here. But it's not going to go on without thinking about it. So I'm not saying that to thinking about it is to take the, the inspiration out of stories. That's why I keep saying this word because it's in my head. It's, it's very exciting, the idea of, of starting to really dig into this as much and think about it and, and internalize it. Because then the stories you want to tell will change. You know, I know your love of performing started at a young age and on the stage. But um, you've said before how the sitcoms of your upbringing, like Family Ties, The Cosby Show, Three's Company, were sort of acting 101 for you. So I- I'm, I'm curious, like, what did you glean from watching them? And maybe, like, how did you subconsciously or not find yourself applying that to, like, your work on The Big Bang Theory or any work for that matter? Yeah. um, Well, that was a concept that I still believe wholeheartedly. My times laying on my stomach with my head and my hands in front of the TV way too long watching reruns and new shows and whatever ended up serving me so well. But it wasn't something I'd ever felt really until I started working on Big Bang. And I realized the first word I would use is rhythm. All the shows are different in their own way, but especially with a multicam, there's a rhythm that goes on with them. And I realized, I'm I'm somewhat musically inclined anyway, but I realized that I sensed this rhythm in a way that there's no good reason I should have sensed it, except that I had watched all those television shows. And also the rhythms and the ways not just in vocalization, but in movements of some of the best performers in those in those shows, like like John Ritter, like Mary Tyler Moore, like B. Arthur, like like Betty White. I mean, Bob Newhart. Oh, Bob Bob's not a great example, actually, because Bob's timing and rhythm is so unique to Bob that he's actually a terrible mentor in that way, in my opinion. He's he's entirely too special. Um, but the other ones were brilliant actors, uh, Michael J. Fox, and and I did learn something from them, and and I just imprinted on me, and um, and I don't know how much I would have brought to the party on my own, as it were, had I never seen any of that. But I wouldn't have taken to the format as quickly. I'll say that it would have been a lot much steeper learning curve, having having not seen all, all those. I mean, right now I'm watching Designing Women on Hulu. Oh, God, yes. I I just can't get enough. It's too good. What were those first few weeks after the Big Bang Theory came to an end? Because I remember talking to Ray Romano and him mentioning how his therapist suggested he should come in twice a week because it was such an adjustment for him. So... (laughs) Did it feel like this big void or not so much because you had your work on Young Sheldon as an EP and narrator? Like, did it feel like, whoa? I had overheard that Ray Romano thing too, and maybe even through you. I don't remember what it was, but his his feeling like he was he was like, this is something I want. I know this is the right time for me. I know I don't need to worry about the thera- adding more therapy. And then a few months later being like, oh, shit. And so 
That stuck in my head. Uh, I didn't know what to do about it precisely. I will tell you one thing I did was at the beginning of, or somewhere during that last season when I knew it was ending, I went and bought The Artist's Way because I was like, you know, I've kind of poo-pooed this book for a long time in my life and watched a lot of people go through it and enjoy it and recommend it. And be like, yeah, 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 I'm already working as an actor. And I thought, I still intend on working as an actor, but I might like to add a little... I'll see if I could add some direction. And I did find that helpful. The other thing, speaking of Ray Romano, though, was that his involvement on his show was so much more than mine was. You know, he wore more hats on it. And I was just uh, just an actor, just an actor. But I also had, I knew that I had the Boys in the Band movie lined up. And then, again, I had Ryan come with this. I've thought more about what you're asking me, actually, during this time... I mean, in its own weird way, quarantine sort of came along as another, oh gosh, another thing that I'm sort of currently doing as opposed to completely whatever normal life is and not working as an actor. I'm not working as an actor right now, but I'm also kind of doing something. I mean, nobody else is working as an actor, really. So it's not like I have a, a FOMO about it or anything. In some ways, I feel like I still haven't dealt with this moment in a weird way. Or maybe I am in just a very slow way because of the way things are going. I remember like the morning after I finished this job where I I was like working as a dental assistant, like in college. And I had been there for like, I don't know, like two years. And I finally had to quit because it was just like interfering with school. And like the morning after I was bawling my eyes out. And, I, and I'm like, this is so weird. Like, this is not what I want to do with my life. But it's like I miss the people, which is a weird thing. But yeah, it just felt like, oh, my God, what's going on? Well, I mean, I just think to varying degrees, we all respond as humans so much to schedules and patterns and things. And I think that any end of something, for sure any end of something, forces you to take a look at life in a way that... It's a little, it's a little scary. I mean, even if it's exciting, it's scary because you look at a passage of time and you look at another section that you're about to begin and you may look forward to that section, but I don't know, it, you know. And especially for me, I was ending it, I was 46 when we ended. And so I was very much, you know, God willing, I was very much in midlife, literally. And I mean, my grandma lived till 90, so I'm Of course, she's a woman and they live longer, so hell, I don't know. So that was all part of it, too. It was also part of the way I had felt about ready to try something new. was like, you know, it's been 12 years and I'll I'll have done this character, lovingly so, through the majority of my 30s and over half of my 40s. And I, I think we need to shake this up a little bit. Was it a decision that you racked your brain over, like, for weeks or months, or was it just like something that just occurred to you as you're sort of maybe forced to think about it when thinking about contracts and stuff, but like, okay, I have clarity on this. I just think it's time. I'm sure I suspected that knowing the end of our contracts were going to come up at the end of the season that was about to happen. Part of me knew that this was probably the last one. But the summer before that final season, I was in New York. We were doing the Broadway version of Boys in the Band. And we were in previews. And my dog died. And 
it was old age. We put him, we had him put to sleep. So it was, it was natural, but it was, it was heartbreaking, obviously. And we had had him, he, since he was eight weeks old and he was 14 and a half, which meant his life umbrellaed all of Big Bang and our move to LA and almost our entire relationship, me and my husband. And that clicked something for me. And, you know, the severe crying I did about that dog was partly because of what he represented as much as anything. And the end of an era, sort of near the end of your dental job, it was just, ay, that's really over. Well, the next thing that happened was I was working on this play and I broke my foot during one performance and I was in a boot for about six weeks of the play and and it was a difficult part in general, even though I was loving it. And I only say all that because it was a very heavy experience and it was a very heavy summer and it really, it put my life into a different sort of relief as it were. And and that was where whatever had been brewing did calcify into a decision. We went back for the first read through of the new season. And look, part of me, it always was waiting because I was like, well, they always come to us for a new contract and we'll have a discussion then. And I'll feel the way I feel and we'll see how everybody else feels. And nobody ever came. And so we go to the first table read the last season. And I just, I don't know how to say it, except that I felt oddly dishonest suddenly. I had this information and knowledge inside of me that as much as I loved everybody, I knew wasn't open to discussion. I had made a life choice. And that's when I asked uh, Chuck if I could, and Steve Malara, if I could talk to them. And that's where it all began from that. But yeah. Our final question. Oh, goody. (laughs) Yeah. Our final question, and you'll actually like this. Our final question comes from our previous guest, Nicholas Braun, who plays Cousin Greg on HBO Succession. Oh, wow. Here's his question for you. Hey, Jim, it's Nick here. What's the weirdest day you ever had on set? On any project... What is a memorably weird day? Oh, shit. Oh, the <laughs> pressure. I mean, look, life on set is always a little bit odd. Let me tell you that. You know what I'm going to go with? And I mean this in the most respectful way it's possible to say. I'm going to go with the most current one for me, which was during Hollywood. And it was at the Core party during the pool scene. I have never been exposed to so many naked people at one time in my entire life. And I've been to gay bars in New York 15 years ago even. Nothing was quote-unquote going on. But not only were they surrounding us, we were in a scene where I had to talk about talk about them. We were staring at them on purpose. And I had such an admiration for the way the relationship that everybody out there, greater than mine at least, had to their body of just like, well, it's a body. I I don't like to walk around my house naked. You know what I mean? So uh, I don't want to sound like a prude. That's not what I. That's not what I'm getting at. I wasn't. Un- well, I won't say I was uncomfortable because that sounds crass. But but um, it was it was that was a weird day. It's like, where do I look? Like, I don't know. (laughs) I'm so happy to have been asked a question by Cousin Greg. I mean, we're here to make dreams come true, Jim. Thank you. You're doing it. Well, now we're going to ask you to play along and ask a question for our next guest. 
And it's a fellow veteran of a long-running sitcom, Jason Siegel, who people know from CBS's How I Met Your Mother. He is now appearing on AMC's Dispatches from Elsewhere. And you can ask anything does not have to be related to his specific show. What would I want to know? What would I want to know? I mean, there's plenty of things that I want to know. Jason, did he used to, or maybe still does, have a feeling after going to an audition like, I think I got that? Um, Because I've gone both ways on this personally in that I've walked out of rooms with that weird sensation knowing I got it, and then I did. But I've also plenty of times gone home and been like, that was awful. I mean, I really feel embarrassed. And then a call comes in that you got it, and you're like, I don't understand the world at all. Is, is that something he experiences or did experience in his time? Was a, kind of a sixth sense about um, auditions. Sometimes the sixth sense was right and sometimes it was just shit. <laughs> yes, we will certainly ask him. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. It was a nice discussion. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you. That's it for the 23rd episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guest for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to Jason Siegel. I've been on this big quest of finding things out. When How I Met Your Mother ended, you know, first thing I did was end of the tour because I was really, I really wanted to find out. Most people don't find out. You just get to sit resentfully at dinner parties with that idea. And I thought, like, let's start finding stuff out. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.